Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, Danny. Uh, and we are pleased what, what to welcome to the What a good Valentine's episode this is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a top-notch Valentine's episode. Uh, we wouldn't want to... Uh, but obviously, happy Valentine's to our guest as well, uh, Mohammed Al-Safin. Mohammed is a journalist with AJ+, Plus, which is uh, an Al Jazeera uh, outlet and uh, he is uh, has been grateful we, well we're grateful to have him he's been gracious enough to join us on, on relatively short notice Mohammed thanks for coming on the program thanks for having me uh, so yeah as Danny says this is a good Valentine's Day topic to get into we want to talk about the situation in Rafa uh, I know that y- you are you can speak to what's what's really happening in Rafa and what people are experiencing and so you know, without trying to guide you in any direction, let's just start with the basic. What is going on in Rafa? What is the situation that people are experiencing there? Sure. So Rafa is the southernmost town in the Gaza Strip. It is literally on the border with Egypt. Um, it's actually, if we can take a little step back in history, um, Rafa, there was an, there's an Egyptian Rafa as well. Rafa was a town that straddled what then became the Gaza-Egypt border. Um, uh, and so a lot of uh, Palestinians from Rafah have family who are Egyptian on the other side and vice versa. Um, uh, and unfortunately, um, when the Egyptian dictator Abdel Fattah Sisi came to power uh, in a coup, uh, one of the things that he did was completely clear out uh, uh, Egyptian Rafah. He committed an act of ethnic cleansing as his own people over there. Uh, and the rationale given at the time was, uh, you might be shocked to hear this, uh, fighting terrorism. Um, and uh, uh, part of it was there was an insurgency in northern Sinai. Another part of it was to destroy um, the underground connections, the tunnels between Gaza and Egyptian Rafah. So what we have right now is a town uh, that uh, three, four months ago had a population of about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people. Um, it is now home, or I wouldn't say home, but now there are 1.3 million people taking shelter at Anofa. Um These people have been displaced from all the other parts of Gaza, from far north, to the central areas, then to south in Khan Yunus. Um, and that is the trajectory that the Israeli army has taken as they've gone in and uh, asked people or forced people to flee s- southwards every time. So the people who are in Rafah right now uh, these 1.3 million people crammed into a tiny town that was home to a population of only fifth that, um, they were told to go there. And they were told to go there by the Israeli army. Mohammed, just to, to clarify, is that or, uh, 1.3 million displaced from other parts of Gaza in addition to the 200,000 or so who already lived in Rafah, or is this total 1.3 million? I believe it's 1.3 million. These numbers are slightly fluid. Sometimes I hear 1.2, 1.3. The thing is, the uh, the number of displaced is is changing all the time because people are going in and out. So um, over the weekend during the Super Bowl, uh, you might have heard Israel committed a massacre over there. And the very next day, some people actually chose to leave Rafah and head back north towards Khan Yunis, where they had just fled from, because, um, I, and this is something I'm hearing from many people in Gaza, if we're going to die, we might as well die at home uh, rather than in tents or in, in displacement camps. So we're, we're looking about 1.3 million people. Now, the reason Rafa is in the news right now, I mean, the 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 
the displacement has been ongoing for more than four months now. We're on day one, 130 of this war. Um, the reason it's in the news right now is uh, the Israeli government has threatened to go in and invade. And unusually, this has been met with some um, statements from the United States and Western gov- other Western governments uh, in Europe um, that have uh, voiced more concern than usual when it comes to Israel's actions in Gaza. Um, and I think the reason being is that we're seeing the almost final concentration of all these people into an area that has absolutely no escape. When I say it's against the up against the border with Gaza, with Egypt, sorry, I literally mean that there are tents that have been pitched right onto the iron border wall between Egypt and Gaza. People have people are sleeping in those tents. They've been they fled to those tents, um, and they can see Egyptian soldiers on the other side. There is nowhere for them to go, um, and so if the Israelis do go in with a ground invasion, we're looking at potentially a massacre that supersedes any of the horrors we've seen over the last four months. And those horrors have been unimaginable so far. Um, Rafa has one small hospital. As we know, the healthcare system in Gaza has been decimated, um, has been deliberately attacked and destroyed uh, systematically by Israel over the last few months. Um, the hospitals have been an act, a, 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 a clear target for the Israeli forces. Um, but despite that, Rafa only has capacity uh, sorry, the Rafah's medical capacity is just one small hospital and, and some clinics. Um, so we're looking at the majority of Gaza's population crammed into a tiny, tiny area now with almost no medical facilities and absolutely nowhere to go facing the, the prospect of uh, an invasion by the Israeli military. Um, and so the, the warning lights are kind of going off in multiple places. Um, but sad to say, nothing seems to be no change in policy seems to be forthcoming from the countries that are backing Israel's slaughter. So this is obviously a absolutely terrible situation and almost unimaginable. How is the Palestinian diaspora thinking through this terrible situation right now? Well, I mean, it's a uh, it, it's been four months of of psychic torture for a lot of people. I mean, you wake up every day and you see things that you never expect to see, um, unimaginable horrors, and then they seem to be exceeded every single day. Um, just in the last two days, three days, three three or four things that kind of just stick in my mind. And by themselves, you know, four months ago, I would have said these are kind of like... Um, images that would define a historical moment, but they seem to be happening every single day. Um, We saw a mother shot dead in the middle of the street by an Israeli sniper. Her young child shot alongside her. He seemed to still be alive and um, people couldn't rescue him because the snipers were firing on anyone who got close to this mother and her child shot in the middle of the street. Eventually they threw a plank tied to a rope to the child and managed to pull him, drag him out of the street. I mean, that by itself is something out of a nightmare. But then it gets superseded by the image, which I'm sure some of you have seen, of that little girl 
whose legs were blown off in Rafah when the Israelis bombed during the Super Bowl. The force of the explosion was so strong, it killed her entire family. Um, I just saw, just before jumping on this with you guys, it turns out the, the, the girl is a cousin of the Palestinian ambassador's wife, the Palestinian ambassador, the UK's wife. So he was talking about how the entire family was killed. This girl had her legs blown off and the force of the explosion was so strong. She was, she, she was flung onto an adjacent building and was hanging off the roof. Um, just, just an absolutely horrific image. Um, and then today, Sky News in the UK um, put out broadcast a report about a um, three children. One of them has cerebral palsy. Um, they were uh, in Gaza City um, several weeks ago. And when the Israelis invaded, they couldn't evacuate because of their disabled child. And as the soldiers got closer, the parents tried to ask for assistance in evacuating their disabled child. Israeli soldiers walked into the house and executed the parents in front of their children and then grenaded the kitchen, leaving a shrapnel, half blinding the disabled child and leaving shrapnel lodged into his brain. These horrors are... I struggle to put them into words because we see them all the time and it feels like you're watching a movie but it's not a movie. It's these are real people, and these are family for a lot of people that I know. Um, and movies end, and this has been going on for 130 days. And it seems like we're only scratching the things that we're seeing are only scratching the surface. And part of the reason that they're only scratching the surface is there's a deliberate communications blackout in Gaza. So we're seeing a we're seeing all these horrific images come out, and yet most people actually have no ability to communicate in Gaza because the internet has been cut off. When this first happened um, back in late October, um, Israel cut the internet and phone lines into Gaza um, as, they, as they began their ground invasion. Um, and I remember John Kirby getting up on the podium and saying there would be no red lines for Israel that night. That was the night that he said it. But there was an outcry. And uh, and the Israelis eventually allowed the lines to be fixed, and within two days, communications had returned. And then over time, people become used to and desensitized to these tactics. So communications were cut several more times um, over the, you know, the, the, the next few months. And now um, it's been weeks, and uh, there's no internet in most of Gaza. And so we're only seeing a fraction of what's coming out. Add to the fact that most people are so. So not only are they are we unable to hear on the outside in the outside world know the full extent of the horrors that are taking place in Gaza, but people in Gaza are unable to communicate with each other. So people don't actually know what's happening, you know, in the next town over, or in the next village over, or in the next block over. Um, so you could the the sense of 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 absolute terror and also not knowing. It's pretty indescribable. Um, and so if you're on the outside, I think sp speaking to a lot of Palestinians who are watching this every day, um, it is psychologically damaging. Like I have no other way to say it. It's, it's psychologically damaging. Um, and it's also, um, it's also destructive in another way. It's destructive to the notion that a lot of us have had 
naive as it may be, that the West and the United States and European democracies um, actually stand for something when it comes to human rights. Um, and, and they love to lord that morality over us. But um, I don't think, I think Gaza has shown, Gaza has been, been a, a decisive break for a lot of people um, on that. So we usually don't talk about domestic politics, but I think this is one of the few situations where it makes sense to to think about that because the, the Democratic Party spent so much of its uh, time out of office criticizing Trump. But I was just wondering if, if, if you saw amongst your cohort any response to the Democratic Party's not only turning a blind eye, but active participation in the Israeli military actions? Yeah, I mean, I think this is me speaking for myself, the people around me, the people I know, colleagues, friends, relatives, um, and then hearing from them, from their extended circles as well. Um, This is not seen as Israel's war. This is seen as America's war. This is seen as Joe Biden's war. Um, And the liberal tendency or the liberal democratic tendency to um, fear monger with Trump it just has no impact anymore. You can't get worse than genocide. Um, and I think the Democratic Party has lost a lot of people. A lot of people were very loyal to it and a lot of people, and I think, I'll be clear, some of the people who know better than anyone what the danger of a Donald Trump presidency is, those are the people the Democratic Party has lost by insisting on backing um, Israel's most right-wing government to date. You know, when when the Kahanists in Israel came to power, I really didn't think that it would be the Democrats who'd be cheering them on as they tried to continue the the Nakba and continue the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. But here, this is where we are in 2024. We talk about the situation in Rafa and the difficulty um, in in all of Gaza, in terms of communicating, you you brought this up. the The communications are down. People can't talk to each other, let alone get any messages out of Gaza. Uh, when you hear the Israeli government, uh, you know, in up to uh, you know a day or two ago, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu talking about we're going to get the civilians out of the way first. We're going to, we're going to go into Rafa, but we're going to get the civilians out of the way. Uh, I want to talk about the logistics of that, but let's, let's leave that for, for the next, my next question. What do you, what is your response at this point to what is so obviously just bullshit um, that, that, you know, even if it was a, a genuine sentiment that we want to get civilians out of the way, they've, created a situation where it's impossible to to systematically inform everybody you know you need to go here or you need to be out of this place what do you what is your response when you, you hear that kind of rhetoric um it's funny uh joseph burrell the the eu's foreign commission the eu commission's foreign policy chief the other day was talking about this and, and said you want to get them where are they supposed to go to the moon um you know and, and it was in it was part of a statement which i thought was a very strong statement um 
And Burrell, by the way, is no kind of bleeding heart liberal. Um, after October the 7th, he came out very, very forcefully in defense of Israel, criticizing Hamas, um, defending Israel's choice to go to war. Um, but I think even he's seen kind of where where the where this is actually headed and what this is actually about. So he said, um, uh, he, he criticized, um, you know, Western officials who go to Tel Aviv every other day and say, you know, we're asking for um, less civilians to be killed. He's like, well, you keep asking and saying, please, and, and they're not listening. So maybe we should cut off weapons. And it was also a pointed, I think, uh, statement to, to the U.S. If I'm not mistaken, he began that statement by saying, you know, I'm not in charge of America's foreign policy. But if you're not happy about the number of civilians being killed, maybe stop sending them so many weapons. Um, yeah, I mean, when 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 President Biden stands up and says, you know, we oppose an attack on Rafah without, um, I think his words were in a, a credible and actionable plan to get the civilians out. Um, oh, I don't think it's necessarily bullshit. I think it's actually potentially terrifying because an actionable, credible plan to get them out. Well, the Israelis could turn around and say, well, the best thing to do is to get them out of Gaza altogether. And knowing this administration and seeing how they behave over the last four months, um, there's nothing to suggest that they wouldn't go for that. Right? Now, over the last few days, we've seen reports that uh, Egypt's government is building uh, what seems to be a displacing displacement camp on its side of the border, complete with seven foot high, um, or 20 foot high, sorry, uh, concrete walls. Um, and it seems like they're bracing for a potential displacement of a mass of people from Rafah into, into Egypt. Um, if you recall, in the early days of this operation, in early October, um, there was a lot of reporting that um, the US was actually trying to pressure Sisi into accepting uh, into opening the border and allowing people out of Gaza into Sinai. Um, now, the thinking at the time was that you know uh, he could be he, he could potentially be bribed. Egypt is in terrible uh, economic condition. Uh, he could probably be. Uh, th- there were talk of forgiving international loans that that uh, Egypt is is uh, owes, um, but that seems to have gone away. And, and then the United States has come out and said that, you know, they oppose any displacement or transfer of the population of Gaza outside Gaza. Now, the thing is, the United States has said a lot of things, has said they oppose a lot of things, and Israel has done it anyway. And all the U.S. has done in return is kind of move on and keep sending the weapons. So there's no, um, there's no reassurance when the president of the United States says that he would oppose a attack or an invasion on Rafah without a credible plan to protect civilians, not only because of everything I said, but because the very next day, um, John Kirby gets up and says, even if there was an attack on Rafah without a plan to clear civilians, the United States wouldn't change its policy and wouldn't consider suspending aid to Israel. So, I mean, there's always a built-in backdoor, it seems like, every time the administration lays out a marker, uh, like, we don't, oppo- we don't support a- an attack on Rafah unless... There's a credible plan. What does that mean yeah. uh, to to protect civilians? Um, and and you know we don't support. And when when the administration says we we can't abide 
any population transfer. It's always with some kind of qualifier, like a forced population transfer. But if if you want to set it up in a way that we could spin it, it's like people are leaving because they want to get away from the war or because Gaza is now a hellhole uh, that's unlivable, then we could probably get behind that. This is this is where I think uh, it, it comes down if, if this is what ultimately happens. And as you say, uh, you know, there's no place for people to go. As, as Burrell said, you know, what do you want? You want them to go to the moon? The choices here are they can either, uh, go from Rafa where they're being bombed to Khan Yunus again, where they're, they'll be bombed, or they can go to Gaza City in the north where they might be bombed, but they'll probably more likely just starve to death because there's no humanitarian access. The options here are, are all uniformly terrible, but maybe, Mohammed, we could, focus on the possibility of displacement into Egypt. This is something we've talked about uh, over and over again, uh, or, or did talk about uh, repeatedly in the early uh, kind of days of this. But the issue with displacing these people into Sinai and the possibility that they will just likelihood, really, that they will never be allowed to go back to Gaza again, and that this is going to be that would be it. Can you talk a bit about what that that means? Yeah, no, I mean, um before I get into that, you, you, you mentioned the possibility of people maybe going north back into Gaza City and, and starving over there. They actually can't even do that. Um, I mean, since uh, since the ground invasion began, um, no one has been allowed to go back north into Gaza City. Uh, the Israelis have, have shot, killed, shelled, droned anyone who's tried to go back. And Netanyahu has made it clear in public statements that he will not allow uh, anytime soon, anyone to return north. So all the, mil- the, the hundreds of thousands of people who were, who were displaced from northern Gaza and went south um, have not been allowed in any way to go back. Um, and and just to add to that, for people who are maybe not aware, the north is not empty. Hundreds of thousands of people stayed in the north. Some of them couldn't leave. Some of them um, knew that if they left, the likelihood of them not being allowed to return is very high. Um, and so hundreds of thousands of people are still there. They're starving um, because Israel is not allowing medi- uh, f- uh, aid supplies to get into Gaza. Um, the UN said that in January, Israel ba- uh, barred over 50% of its missions into northern Gaza. Um, people are eating animal feed. They're eating grass. They're eating tree leaves. There's no water. There's no medical supplies. All the hospitals in northern Gaza have been destroyed. So it is an unimaginable catastrophe. In the south, in Rafah and Khan Yunus, up until very, very recently at least, um, there was access somewhat. You had medical missions going in. Um, whatever aid was getting in through Rafah would go through the south, and most of it was actually being delivered there. In the north, um, the only thing that we know about what's happening in the north is from um, the, the the journalists who decided to remain there and have access to satellite phones and things like that. Um, and, uh, and and the situation there is extremely dire. And um, I will get back to, to the question you asked, Eric, but I, I think it's worth actually giving people an idea of what's happening in the North since we've talked so much about what's happening in Rafah. Um, uh, the Israelis have pulled most of their uh, uh, soldiers out of northern Gaza. They're still, they're still tanks. They're still... Um, the, the, the military is still there, but most of it has been pulled out. Um, and there are ongoing clashes between them and Palestinian resistance fighters. Um, however, um, what happens when, when these journalists who are in the north, um, some of them were, are my colleagues, work for Al Jazeera, um, what 
happens, it's almost like clockwork. Every time the Israelis pull out of a certain neighborhood or an area where their tanks and their and their infantry had been stationed for a while, uh, people go go in to see what's left. And more often than not, what they find is dozens, if not hundreds of bodies. Um, these are bodies that are usually laying in the streets that have been there for so long, they're decomposed. They're unidentifiable. They're buried in mass graves. Um, and so there's a kind of an added element to this horror, which is that so many of the people that have been killed, that are dead, we don't know about them. We don't know how many... So we know the official number of dead so far, and we're talking about dead from Israeli airstrikes and artillery strikes and snipes, snipers, not people who have died from a lack of medical care um, or from starvation. Just the people who have died from military operations, um, I think, has, has reached 28,000. That's more than 1% of Gaza's entire population. One in every 100 people in Gaza has been killed over the last four months. There are thousands of people who are missing whose fate is completely unknown. We have to presume that they will be dead. We also know that the Ministry of Health, which um, Joe Biden famously disparaged and, and, and said he doesn't trust their numbers, the only people they count as dead are people whose bodies are either whose corpses are either delivered to hospitals or who die in hospitals, or whose families or relatives give report that they have been killed, right? Because a lot of times people are being buried in intersections or under pavements because there's nowhere for them. It's not safe to carry them to the cemeteries. Many of the cemeteries have also been desecrated. There's a great CNN report on that. I think 16 of Gaza cemeteries have been desecrated, graves dug up, corpses kidnapped and taken into Israel. Um, again, horror upon horror upon horror. Um, and it's hard to wrap your mind around and, and hard to, um, <laughs> it's hard to imagine what any of this has to do with recovering hostages or defeating Hamas. Um, so this is the situation in the North. We're talking, uh, we're talking starvation. I mean, um, two nights ago on the Senate floor, um, Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland, of Maryland, um, gave an impassioned speech about what's happening especially in northern Gaza. He talked about the deliberate starvation, the famine. He talked about how he had texted Cindy McCain, who was the head of the uh, World Food Program, and asked her if the reports of uh, famine are true and said that what she responded to him was that, unfortunately, yes, we're unable to stop children from, from dying. Children are beginning to die of hunger in northern Gaza. Uh, and he was giving that speech in the context of a uh, uh, a vote on the Senate uh, to on, on an aid package for um, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, um, and to defund UNRWA as well. And after giving this impassioned speech in which he said that um, the people doing this in Gaza are war criminals, and that President Biden needs to do something, he went and voted yes for the package anyway. Um, so this... This is where we are with, with yeah. domestic U.S. politics. You, you don't want to laugh, but what can you do other yeah. than just say, "Yeah, okay." I mean, it's the same response I have when, uh, you know, you you ask any of the spokespeople for this administration, "Are you happy with what the Israelis are doing?" No. Are you going to change anything? No. We're going to keep on doing what we're doing, even though we admit that this is uh, gone beyond the pale. Yeah, I mean, it's not I mean, going to change anything. I mean, I'm I'm not quite sure how they think this is playing. Um, I can tell you, 
internationally, it's playing as if uh, Joe Biden is an extremely weak president who is being, uh, you know, who's, who, who, who can't control his client state. Um, he's being uh, dog walked by Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, there's a, uh, it's, uh, you know, that who, who's the fucking superpower here? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So, um, so I don't know. I don't know what the what the Biden administration thinks. Uh, how they think this is playing out. Um, I think it makes them look extremely ineffective, extremely weak, um, but also ex- it complicit, and they are complicit. And uh, Bernie Sanders has been has been relatively disappointing on this, um, because he still refuses to call for a ceasefire. Has over the last few weeks, repeatedly said that the United States is complicit in what's going on in these war crimes. Um, and yet, he did. To, it, I mean, to give him his due, he did at least vote against the aid package, which correct. It was know, at least at, at the very minimum, this lowest of the low bars he managed but, to get over. I mean, we are in hell, so that's where the bar is. Um, it was him and uh, Jeff Merkley of Oregon. Um, Jeff Merkley actually um, went to Rafa to the Egyptian side of Rafah with Chris Van Hollen um, earlier this, I think it was either beginning of the year or end of last year. Um, and they reported back on the difficulties in getting aid into Gaza. So, I mean, that's one thing that we can talk about as well. Um, uh, I keep name dropping him because so much of the most insidious shit has come from his mouth over the last few months. But John Kirby, um, a few months ago, um, got up on the podium and, and almost berated the journalists and said, name me one other country who has done as much as we have to get aid into Gaza. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, trick question. Trick question. So uh, Merkley and Van Hollen, actually, one of the things they reported on was the mechanism for uh, getting aid into Gaza from Egypt. So there's uh, everyone who's been kind of to northern Sinai says there are miles and miles and miles of trucks backed up, aid trucks that have been donated from um, from regular people who've kind of banded together to through aid organizations, donations from other countries, from Egyptians, from the Egyptian government. Every single truck has to go through an inspection process, um, through an Israeli inspection process. Now, the World Food Program says that 80% of the hungriest people on earth are currently in Gaza. So you would think there would be some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, uh, rush to get this aid in. Um, what Merkley and Van Hollen found was that the Israeli inspection station is only open eight hours a day and closed on weekends. Uh, what they found was that if the Israelis decide that a single item in the entire truck should not go in, they turn the entire truck back and it goes to the back of the line. So it has to wait a few more weeks to get back in. Um, some of the things that they found were banned, included um, uh, medical kits for childbirth. Uh, uh, tents and tent poles, water filtration systems. So this is the stuff that the Israelis are banning from getting in. And this is also an explanation of why so little aid is getting in. Um, it's also, uh, we've also seen, uh, I don't know if you saw the Washington Post report by Loveday Morris yesterday. Um, she reported on the Israeli civilians who are actually showing up at these border crossings to stop the trucks from getting into Gaza. Um, really, really kind of uh, a dark look or a look into like 
the darkness that's engulfed some of these people's minds. Um, celebrating whenever they hear explosions in Gaza, um, celebrating, hoping that there'd be more dead people. Um, but also things like, you know, they don't need food or they're the enemy, so we're not going to give them food. Um, I'm talking about civilians here. Um, obviously, in war, even in wartime, um, you can't starve a civilian population. But those were the explicit goals and the explicit, that was the explicit agenda of the Israeli establishment in the first days of the war. Um, you had an Israeli general who said, no water, no food will get in. No water, no food, no electricity will get in. Um, these are war crimes. You're starving and besieging a civilian population. This is collective punishment. They said this from day one, but nothing has happened. Nothing has been done to stop that, to stop them. Nothing has been done um, to change the policies that would force them to reconsider or force them to allow this aid in, even as they continue killing at a, at a, at a scale that experts see, say has not been seen the century. Following uh, on the subject of humanitarian aid, and I, I mean, you know, we can could continue this conversation indefinitely, really. There's so much to talk about. But I, I, I do want, before, before I let you go, uh, to talk about the uh, really incessant effort to do away with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Uh, there was the, uh, you know, striking claim, which just happened coincidentally to come out on the same day that the International Court of Justice ruled that there's probable cause to think uh, the Israelis might be committing genocide. Just totally out of the blue. I mean, we, yeah. we wasn't planned at all. No, no. Uh, accusing, uh, I, I think it was a dozen uh, UNRWA employees of participating in the October 7th attacks. Subsequent, you know, we had, subsequently we had out, journalistic outlets look at this uh, dossier that the Israelis had put together, and that came down to maybe half a dozen UNRWA employees participating, and there really wasn't much evidence uh, that any of them participated. It was really kind of not, you know, kind of hanging by a thread. So now the the new uh, accusation is we've discovered finally for the seventh or eighth time in this conflict, we've discovered Hamas's secret, double secret uh, master headquarters, and it just so happens to be in a tunnel under the UNRWA headquarters. Go figure, another wild coincidence. Uh, after it was under Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, after it was under Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. Now, oh, wow, look at this. Uh, so uh, what do you make of this? And of course, you know, the Israeli government has long had it in for UNRWA because it wants to say uh, there's, a, there's a, a crisis of Palestinian refugees what if we just stopped calling them refugees? Not what if we address the needs of these people, but what if we just simply define the problem out of existence? And that's what UNRWA, you know, getting rid of UNRWA would represent. What do you make of all of this? Uh, it shows you just how much of uh, Israeli mainstream thought, um, going all the way up to the kind of like the highest echelons of the government, um, has been captured by uh, ideological kookiness, right? Um, you can't delete the refugee status of Palestinians by deleting a UN agency. That, that, that's not how it works. They're still refugees. Um, UNRWA was set up, I believe, in 1950, so two years after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, and it stands for United Nations Reliefs and Works Agency. So the whole goal of UNRWA 
um, wasn't, it's, it's not a, um, the way it's, it's, it's been defined by a lot of kind of uh, Israelis and, 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 and American politicians as kind of uh, like a, a welfare agency for Palestinians that just hands out checks. Um, UNRWA actually employs Palestinians and it employs Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank in the refugee camps in Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. Um, it exists to uh, allow the Palestinians who have been displaced or are stateless um, the chance to kind of um, build some semblance of a life for themselves. So um, there are UNRWA schools. Um, there are uh, UNRWA medical facilities. Um, there's also the, um, you know, food aid and things like that. Um, the attempt to kind of delegitimize UNRWA uh, and, 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 and uh, tie it to uh, the, the solution. Sorry, let me take that from the beginning. Um, one thing that's, that's ironic about, about all this is um, when Israel applied to become a member of the United Nations in, in the months after it was founded, um, it, was, uh, it, 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 it was allowed to do so under the condition that it allows the Palestinian refugees to return to their homes from which it had forced them out. Um, obviously, Israel has refused to do that and then has spent the next 75 years refusing to abide by almost every UN resolution passed that concerns it. Um, but this attack on UNRWA is, is, is very cynical. Um, and I think um, uh, I, I think the, the head of UNRWA um, immediately fired those 12 people and then later admitted he didn't even know what they were accused of. Um, I think what he was trying to do was uh, get ahead of the problem. And I think he made it worse by doing that. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I, it, it's, if you look, if you take a step back and, and, and look at it rationally, it's, it's very cynical. It's also very silly. Um, but I think it came to a head with uh, that news dropping on the day of the ICJ ruling. Um, and it was, I think, a shameful moment for a lot of media organizations that um, promoted it over the news of the ICJ ruling um, and then ran interference for the Israelis, um, repeating uh, the allegations with absolutely no proof whatsoever. And then, like you said, as soon as the dossier came, w was was seen by other media organizations, it turns out it was all a bunch of crap. There was nothing there. Even the United States Secretary of State said they'd never investigated before deciding to cut funding to UNRWA. Um, by the way, uh, defunding UNRWA means that uh, the famine that we talked about is only going to get worse. The, right. Please talk about this, because this is going to be my next question. The idea of doing this, even if you agree that this is a rotten organization that needs to be, you know, root and branch done away with doing it in the middle of this situation, which is a humanitarian catastrophe. And this is the agency that's responsible for delivering humanitarian aid in Gaza and distributing it. Just it, I mean, it's monstrous, but but it is, please, you know, please talk about that. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I mean, the. <laughs> The United States has said, has come out and said themselves, have come out and said that UNRWA is best, I think it was the State Department that said UNRWA is the best placed organization because of their history and their knowledge and their expertise in Gaza to, uh, to, to allow the dispersion of urgently needed aid. Aid that if it does not reach these people, these people will starve to death. And yet, the U.S. Senate just voted to defund it and the State Department itself 
decided to cut all future funding past, I think, the month of February. So when I said earlier that a lot of people see this not just as an Israeli war, but a, a, an American war on Gaza and a Joe Biden war on Gaza, this is the stuff we're talking about. You're not just sending the bombs, you're deliberately starving the people under the bombs. And I don't think it can get any more cynical or any more terrible than that. So, Mohammed, I, uh, I I do want to kind of wrap up with maybe a dis- maybe you could uh, give people a sense of where things are likely to go from here. And if you want to talk about uh, what we've seen from these ceasefire talks that have been yeah. going on, which seems to be the only hope for maybe forestalling uh, an attack on Rafa. Uh, but what are your sort of uh, as you read the the situation, your expectations for uh, for what's about to happen? So I think I would be it would be uh, naive of me to try and kind of give anyone any expectations because um, we're looking at a uh, a government the government of Benjamin Netanyahu that is um, well Netanyahu is flanked by messianic zealots to his right that he needs to stay in power um, he has always been a right wing extremist himself and. He knows that the day this war ends, that is probably not just the end of his political career, but he could possibly also end up in jail, um, not for anything he's done in Gaza over the last four months, but because of corruption charges. Um, uh, he will lose his his immunity if he's no longer prime minister. And it's very, very uh, likely that the day the war ends or very soon after, um, Israelis will want him gone. Because Netanyahu has uh, overseen one of the most catastrophic failures in Israel's history, and that was October 7th. Netanyahu's entire persona, his political persona, he's the longest serving prime minister in Israel, is that the only way to deal with the Palestinians and the only way to guarantee security to Israelis is to deal with Palestinians with an iron fist. Um, lock them up behind walls, uh, bomb them sporadically, what 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 Israelis re- refer to euphemistically as mowing the grass every few years, um, bomb the Gazans and make sure that you know, um, they're 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 deterred from trying to uh, to fight back, um, and that all collapsed on October seventh. This notion that you can have apartheid and you can have Jewish supremacy in a land where Palestinians and Israeli Jews are roughly equal in population, um, and this notion that you can have uh, you can lock up pas- Palestinians behind walls and in cages and have a normal uh, middle-class Western lifestyle was shattered by October 7th. And I think that was one of the main reasons why October 7th happened. It was not just a reaction to the oppression of the preceding years, but it was designed to shatter that illusion, right? To force Israelis to understand that you cannot have it both ways. Unfortunately, um, faced with this notion of, okay, we, can, we, we can't have apartheid uh, and and normalcy, Israelis decided that the option, the, the next thing was genocide. Uh, and that's where we are right now. Um, and so um, I think it's very, very important to take what a lot of Israeli leaders are saying at face value. Everything from the early days, I mentioned cutting off food and water. Um, you know, a lot of the genocidal statements that were used by South Africa in their case in the ICJ as proof of the genocidal intent of the Israeli leadership and military. Um, this was set out in public. And uh, 
And a lot of Western leaders chose to pretend that they weren't hearing what they were hearing. Um, and this is where we are as a result. Um, now, the ceasefire talks uh, are being mediated by uh, the United States, Qatar, Egypt. Um, and uh, there was a meeting between the Egyptians, the Qataris, and the Americans and Israelis in Paris about 10 days ago to go over the outline of a potential ceasefire proposal. Um, that proposal was sent to Hamas by Qatar. Uh, Hamas took their time deliberating and responded about a week later. And the response by Hamas was actually very detailed. And I don't know if you want to, uh, if, if, if we have time for me to kind of get into this, because I think it's very instructive uh, to know what it was that, that, that Hamas proposed as a way out of this. Okay, so um, they proposed a, uh, a three-stage ceasefire. Uh, each stage would last 45 days. Um, within the first stage, uh, the Israelis would pull out of the population centers in Gaza. They didn't ask for the Israelis to pull out of Gaza completely, but just pull out of the population centers, allow people to go home, allow the uh, aid to flow to the places where it's needed urgently, and allow the reconstruction of the most important uh, infrastructure that was destroyed, which are the schools and the hospitals. Uh, we, we didn't mention this, but um, Israel has destroyed every university and I think 70% of all the schools in Gaza. So uh, so the first first stage would be a redeployment of Israeli forces, um, aid flowing in, uh, the entry of, I think, uh, 60,000 temporary housing units, uh, uh, caravans, um, and 200,000 tents. Um, and during that time, there would be a prisoner exchange where uh, all the elderly sick and young prisoners held by Hamas would be exchanged for um, uh, a number of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. The second stage of the deal would, would include the Israelis completing their pullout and withdrawal from Gaza, uh, a massive reconstruction uh, effort, uh, and uh, the, the release of the remaining Israeli captives in Gaza in exchange for most, I think not all, but most of the remaining Palestinians who are held prisoner by Israel. So by the end of the second stage, Hamas's deal, uh, Hamas's um, proposal uh, would have freed all the Israeli hostages that are alive, because we know that a number of them have been killed. Hamas says uh, they've been killed in Israeli airstrikes. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but uh, we know there are dead Israelis, and the Israelis have themselves estimate, I think, between 20 and 30 of the hostages have been killed. Um, the third stage would include uh, the the swap, uh, the the uh, exchange of the bodies of all Palestinians and all Israelis held captive by both sides. Um, and the idea being that during this third stage, uh, there would be a final agreement on the permanent cessation of hostilities between Hamas and Israel. Um, now, this is a deal that gets all the hostages back home, that uh, ends the carnage in Gaza and begins a rebuilding process. And it was a deal that was rejected out of hand by Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, the United States said that they felt the, in the words of Antony Blinken and President Biden, that the Hamas proposal was a little over the top. Those were the words that they chose to use, but that there is space to work with the proposal. Um, and so negotiations have continued. Um, however, yesterday, Israeli media broke the news that um, 
Netanyahu rejected a proposal drawn up by the heads of his own intelligence agencies, the Mossad and the Shin Bet, for a ceasefire deal and refused to, uh, and said that if they're going to go to to Cairo to continue negotiating, then they, they're only going to go there to listen uh, rather than to actually negotiate and participate. So Netanyahu seems very unwilling to go down this path. Like I said, um, there are two reasons for that. One, his own political future. Two, um, the the coalition that he relies on uh, of religious extremists who actually want to resettle Gaza and uh, complete the ethnic cleansing that potentially is going to happen if the invasion happens in Rafah. Mohammed Asafin, I think we'll leave it there. Um, we would love to have you back. Uh, I would like to say under happier circumstances, I suspect they will not be, um, unfortunately, but uh, we would love to have you back nevertheless. Thank you so much uh, Thank you. for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you.